Um, so today we are um, blessed and honored to have a guest speaker today. Um, Pastor Tony is speaking at another church. Um, we're doing this um, series right now where um, just a couple pastors are going to each other's churches and um, preaching to um, the congregation. So um, today we are blessed with uh, Pastor Tim. He's spoken here many times before. Um, a couple um, fun facts about him. Pastor Tim was at the beach this morning. Wow. Ah. And then he also, on his wife's 40th birthday, got her a new vacuum cleaner. <laughs> and he also owns more than 2,000 comics. That's crazy. All right, well, anyways, um, let's welcome Pastor Tim. I was actually at the beach when I got the message of three fun facts. So the first thing I could think of was that I was at the beach. And only possible because we're doing the pulpit exchange. <clears throat> And uh, it gives pastors a couple of weeks where we don't have to prepare sermons. Um, we prepare one and then we preach the same one in, in the three churches that we visit. Um, so it, it gives us a little bit more relaxing, uh, especially Sundays for me. So I got a chance to go to the beach with uh, my son. Uh, my wife turned 40 last week and being the romantic I am, I gave her a vacuum cleaner. Um, when I told my church people that, uh, the women, they were angry. They're like, you did what? Uh, they wanted to look like they were gonna like, hit me or something. Uh, but the men, they, they found it amusing. Um, what was the third thing? Oh, comic books, yeah. I, I, I bought them all pre-marriage, but yes, it's in my parents' garage somewhere. Uh, I used to be a big comic book geek. Um, collected from a little child all the way until um, I was married. Yes. My wife knew about it and she still married me. I've been going through the book of Genesis with my church um, and this, this is the last one that, um, Genesis 12 is the last one I preached, but I preached that at the conference. <clears throat> so this is the last one that you guys did not hear uh, that I prepared. So. My parents and I, we disagree on a few things in life, but one of them is the use of the dishwashing machine. My parents renovated their house maybe five years ago, and the entire kitchen is new, including a brand new, very expensive dishwash machine. My parents use it as a storage for old pots and pans, and at best, they use it as a drying rack. I try to conv convince them for years, like, Mom, uh, you, like, you gotta use the machine. Like, like you can't just, you, you have a bad back and you just can't, you know, just use it, please. She goes, ah, wasting water. So I showed her an article on how if you switch to the machine, average family saves 5,000 gallons a year. She's like, ah, the article's in English, I don't trust it. I was like, you, you only trust Korean articles, what? And then she goes, ah, it doesn't clean it well. And I said, no, it uses like really like boiling hot water, so it actually disinfects better than just regular water. I find no logical, no good reason, unless it's just a couple of dishes, of course, but in a full amount of dishes, 
There's no good reason, no logical reason to not use the dishwashing machine. I hope you agree. Otherwise, I'll be sending you some articles. As I'm teaching Genesis, I realize, man, the first four stories, after the creation account, the next four stories are really very similar. It's people who are not trusting in God. Adam and Eve, it wasn't enough that God knew everything. They're like, no, I want to know about evil. I want to know as much as God. So they ate the fruit. Cain and Abel, next story. Cain. It was not enough that God gave him my identity. He wanted it to be about him. He said, no, I don't care if you love me, God. I want to be better than my brother. Oh, you like him more? Well, I'm going to kill him. He wouldn't trust God. Noah's Ark, it says the entire world was corrupt. They couldn't trust God to live his ways. They're like, no, I'm going to live my own way. And today's story, God tells his people to be fruitful and multiply. And we know the final reason in the book of Revelation. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation. God wants every type of people. It's his people to spread all around the world, worshiping him, giving him glory. Well, that can't happen if everyone is one place. The people are like, you know what? I know you want us to spread around, but you know what? My idea is better. We're going to stick in one place. We're going to build a tall tower. We're going to all stay right here. Despite having no advantage, despite having no logical good reason to live apart from God, the first few stories of Genesis are people who, who are refused to trust in God and live according to their own ways. And in these stories, we gotta find ourselves in it. We are Adam and Eve. We are Cain, not Abel. We are not Noah, but we are the sinners who refuse to get on the boat. And in this story, we are the ones who are building a tower. So that's the question I want to answer today. Why do we try to live apart from God? Despite having no advantage, why do we try to live apart from God? Number one, because technology gives us an option to not rely on God. I'm going to blame it on technology. Because technology gives us an option to not rely on God. And they reread uh, verse 23. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar instead of mortar. So this is how people spread around back in the days. There's a group of people. Imagine this group here. You guys are all one community, and you guys all live in one place. Eventually, you guys are going to have babies, and the resources in the land is going is to run dry. There's too much population for that place. So what would happen is a big chunk would, would, would move away. You know, normally you know, the elderly or a little bit older will stay, and then the new generation will move. 
and they will settle in another place. And then same thing. It, the population will grow, it will outgrow the resources, and then they, they, they keep moving, right? Because they want to be fruitful and multiply and spread all over the world as God commanded them. And when it came to buildings and houses, it was really difficult because they relied, it says here, they had brick for, for stone and tar for mortar. So what, what they mean is they used to have stone. Stones were natural, natural rocks that you find in the environment. You try to find one that's not too heavy and then you put a little paste in between stones uh, mixed with mud, clay, and straws. It says here, it's mortar, uh, I guess that's what it's called, and you make a, try, make, try cutting a big old rock without modern day tools, impossible. So buildings were primitive, uh, and large buildings like this was impossible to build. But there was a techno technological advancement that gave them an option to disobey. They invented bricks. They were able to manufacture bricks instead of finding random stones in the environment. They were able to manufacture things that went inside between the bricks. That looks like asphalt. Actually, I have no idea. I don't know. Is that asphalt? Uh, it says here tar, right? They had, they had, they had an ancient version of asphalt, which can be manufactured. Now, technology gave him an option to disobey. They could say, you know what? We don't have to move. We should bring a, build a giant building. We can all stay here. In the same way, whether you realize it or not, the technology that is around us in a daily basis is giving us an option to not obey God. You know, I went to a conference one time. It was a very small gathering, maybe around this size, and we were put into groups of eight, these round tables of eight. We were eating lunch, and we were just conversing, and we were just talking. I was next to this elderly pastor. When you guys are pretty young, when you guys think elderly, I don't know what age you guys you know, think, but um, I would say he was, he was a retired pastor. He was in ministry for 30, 40, maybe even more. He was a pastor for a long time. He was probably 70s, right? Not quite 80, but 70s. And he was sharing about his experience as a pastor in the Midwest. He said he pastored in some farm town with like, you know, hardly any people. It would be like a house and a farm, and then way later, house and a farm. And he was pastoring a church in that kind of town. And he said something very interesting. He said when one of his members would move into a city, he would have a special Bible study with that person. I'm like, about what? He said it would be a special Bible study warning them about the dangers of a city. He's elderly, so I was like, oh gosh. This is, he, probably, like, he felt like my mom lecturing me. Like, oh, I could imagine what he would say. And I thought of my mom lecturing me when I graduated junior high and when I, when I was going into high school, my mom sits me down and she gave me a lecture about the dangers of high school. If you saw me in eighth grade, I had glasses that big. It was like goggles. 
Like when I would take it off, my, my tan line would be literally like this big. So I'll never take it off. Right? Imagine you're a nerdy little kid who reads comic books, right? And, and, your, and your mom sits you down, warning you about the dangers of high school. So I'm like, what? what? What are the dangers, mom? She warned me about the dangers of drugs, sex, and gangs. I was like, okay, high school must be crazy. So I go to high school, finish a full year, no drugs, no sex, no, no gangs. So after that, I, I sat my mom down. I'm like, mom, like once a month, you give me this lecture on sex, drugs, and gangs? Let me tell you, I've been in high school one year, no one has offered me a membership to a gang so far, not even close. No one has offered me drugs, I don't even know where to find them. Where are these drugs you're talking about? And I said, mom, for sure, no girl has offered me any sex. Like, not even close, like, like mom, what are you talking about? Like, where's the danger? I felt like that pastor was gonna say something like that to his people going to a city. Oh, watch out for the danger of drugs, sex, and rock and roll in the city, you know. I, I thought it was gonna be one of those. But interest, interestingly enough, he said he would warn them about the conveniences of a city, the busyness. He listed a couple other things. But the convenience part, that really got, that really struck me. I said, convenience? So you had a Bible study on, you know, watch out for Amazon.com and Ralph's? Like, that was your Bible study? And you know, he's like, oh, Amazon didn't exist back then, but yeah, pretty much. See, he's, he said this to me. He said, when you're a farmer, you work your butt off, but at the end of the day, you pray desperately for rain. He says, in my town, when you got sick, you got a Tylenol and prayer. Hospital is too far away just to go because of a headache. He said, prayer and dependence on God was built into their life. They couldn't just get food. They had to pray and make sure they had a good year of farming to get food. They were deathly afraid of droughts and a bad crop season. They're always relying on God. How about us? Do we care that there has, it's like a crazy drought in California? Do we care? No, because when you get hungry, you go to Ralph's, you go to a restaurant. If it rains, you go, oh, how annoying. Oh, I just got a car wash. Whatever we need, boom, we get it. The reliance on God has been built out of our lives. What's the biggest technological advancement that we, that that is most dear to us right now? Everyone has it. The cell phone, yes. Okay. Did somebody else say some some other thing? Cell phone, right? You guys, I'm sure you guys all have it. I'm sure you guys all sleep right next to it. If it's missing for like four seconds, you panic. I've seen, I've seen parents like panic less when their child disappears. It's like, ah, he always comes back. 
I'm sure he's around. Cell phone's missing. Oh my gosh, where's my phone? This, this is dear to all of us, including me. I read, a, I read a book on cell phone dependence in 2004. It's eight years, no, 2014, sorry, 2014. Um, this is when cell phones, you know, most people had it, but it was pretty new. My wife didn't have it. She had it like a little bit after that. And the book is called How the Phone is Ch- Changing You. And he spoke at a conference, he wrote articles, and author eventually wrote a book on it. And in one of the chapters, he, he says, he basically says that as we become more dependent on the phone, he says we become more like the phone. We become like the phone. What does he mean by that? Well, what is the function of a phone? How do you communicate with the phone? Okay, it, it's for information exchange. It, it's for shallow relationships, shallow conversations. Like when you have a hard time, when you got problems, you're not gonna, you know, text Pastor Tony a long old text. You, you're gonna say, Pastor Tony, can we let's have coffee? I got some things going on in my life. I want to talk to you about. Can we get coffee? When you break up with your girlfriend, you're not gonna text text her that. Thank you for the last seven years. Goodbye. Okay, some of you guys are like, well, you can't text a breakup. What's wrong with that? That means you're already jacked up. The phone has already messed you up. So the rest of the sermon is for the people who still have hope in their lives, okay? Worshiping through a phone. Personal, like friendships with the phone, through the phone. These are for shallow things. And he argues that as people get more and more dependent on the phone, he says, he said, church attendance will decline. When I read that book, 2014, I said, this guy's crazy. He's just trying to say something sensational so he uh, could sell some books. I was like, nobody I know is going to go to church less because of a phone. Ah, but the pandemic hit. There was an article in the National Library of Medicine. The title was, Smartphone Overuse, The Hidden Crisis of COVID-19. Over 70 people, they, 70 people surveyed reported significant increase in cell phone usage. How did that change Christians? How did that change Christianity? How did that change the church? Well, my church, we're about one-third down. 2019 to today, attendance-wise, one-third down. I guest preached at a friend's church a couple months ago. He had around 50 to 60 average. When I spoke there, there were 15 people. I felt so bad, I could even ask him, like, where's everyone, what happened? I could even ask. Well, I didn't, because I knew why. All across the board, churches are closing, or they're, they're down one third, down the half. Those are common stories that you'll hear. But you know what kind of churches are growing? Large churches are growing. Mega churches are growing. Why? Because it offers something that people want. Shallow relationships. You know, 
The last time I spoke at this church, you guys heard me speak, you know, at the retreat and the conference, but the last time I spoke at here, it was during my sabbatical. So for 13, 14 weeks, all I did was visit mega churches. Besides the friends church that I, I guess spoke like here, I only went to mega churches. It was about eight, nine weeks of it, I went to mega churches. Not one person came up to me and talked to me. Not one person asked my name. And it was awesome. Nobody knew me. I went to the restroom right in the middle of sermon because I had to go. Nobody was judging me. I didn't go back to the same church. Nobody called me to say, hey, where are you, man? It was beautiful. You know why? Because that's what I was looking for. It's my sabbatical. I have a home church. I'm not going to leave my church. So I was looking to to attend the service with great preaching, everything set up. That's exactly what I got. Nice air-conditioned rooms, big old screens, top-of-the-line preaching and preachers, great parking, church services, 9, 10, 11, 12. Whenever I wake up, hmm, which one should I go? No one knew me. It was amazing. Unfortunately, What I wanted during my sabbatical is what people want for their Christian life. They want to be invisible. They want it shallow. They they don't want accountability. They want to stay home and worship through the phone. This thing is making us shallow. When we think of spiritual dangers, we think of evil things, addictions and abuse, Drugs, addiction, whatever. We think of evil things. We don't ever stop to think how our phone is spiritually dangerous. Or Netflix, or supermarkets, the conveniences of life. How our affluence is one of the biggest stumbling blocks to our spiritual life. I want you to think to yourself throughout this week. When I'm down, when I'm depressed, when I have anxiety, when I'm going through stuff, who do I turn to? How do I respond to this? Do you go to the Lord in prayer? Do you get encouraged through the word of God? Where after a long day, you get a drink, turn on your Netflix and you watch your favorite show, you think, you forget about the the complexities about life for 30 minutes for one hour, and then you go to sleep. Do you turn to technology? Do you turn to God? Think about that this week. All right, point number two. You guys are not putting up the points, right? Good. I just realized the points I gave you and what I have here is different, so. I forgot. This is, a, this is a sermon 2.0. That was, that was uh, what my church got 1.0. The one I messed up on. This is made all the f- fixes. All right, so why do we live apart from God? Despite no advantages. Logically, <laughs> no reason to, not to. Well, why do we live apart from God? Number two. Number one was because technology gives us the option not to. Number two. 
because of our, na- our need for a name. Because of our need for a name. Verse 4. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Let's do this to make a name for ourselves. Everyone here, you and I, every single person here, has, we have a built-in desire to make a name for ourselves. And did you know that God fulfills that need? We have a need to make a name for ourselves, and God gives you a name. You are a child of God. You are beloved. You are his child. You already have identity. You have a name that is already great. God gives you that. When the original audience read this passage, they would have been a little bit shocked. Because a name is given from superior to inferior. God gives us our name. God gives his, his uh, people in the Bible names. Abraham, Saul to Paul, Peter. God gave them names. It's superior to inferior. Your kids cannot come up to you and say, Mom, your name is no longer Trisha. It's Jennifer. Your children cannot name you. Your children cannot name themselves. But here, they said, let's make our own name. Let's make a name for ourselves. Something's wrong with that. Yet, that's exactly what we do. That is the main point of many of our lives, is to make a name for ourselves. How many of you guys watch the musical Hamilton? Let's see how cultured TLC is. One, two, three, four, five. Okay, six, seven, okay, okay. Eight, nine, okay, good. Double digits, nice. Nice, very cultured. Has Pastor Tony and Trisha watched it? You're, hey, props to you guys. Yeah. All right. You guys passed the cool test. When I watched Hamilton, unfortunately, I knew nothing about that guy. I went to school here, but I didn't know anything. I told my wife, he's the guy in the $20 bill, right? She's like, no. $10 bill. I was like, oh, my bad. I have an excuse, though. I became a citizen just last year, okay? And I watched it before I got my citizenship. So I have a pass. Alexander Hamilton doesn't come from a good family. He was an orphan. He was a mixed race person. He was born in the Caribbean, so he was an immigrant. He was overlooked all his life. He was looked down upon all of his, all of, all of his life. So the musical is about how he makes himself a name. The very first song from the musical, I'll read the lyrics. I promise I will not sing it for you. And the world is going to know your name. What's your name, man? Alexander Hamilton. My name is Alexander Hamilton. There's a million things I haven't done, but just you wait, just you wait. And the third song is about, he says, I am not throwing away my shot. 
The whole musical is about how he wants to make a name for himself. That's what drives him. That's what gets him up every morning. I gotta do something about my life. I want everyone to know who I am. And you could say, you could dismiss that and say, oh, that's just, you know, that's rare. That's a famous person you're talking about. How about my son? My seven-year-old son. Anyone know his name? His name is Micah Lee. Anyone know him? He's not famous, right? It was one of his last baseball games of, of the season. He was playing shortstop. This big old kid comes up. It's a seven and eight-year-old league. And once in a while, a, a giant kid comes, and every, every parent goes, I want to see that kid's birth certificate, right? And one of those kids, giant. The kid is on defense. This giant kid comes up, right? And he hits it right to my son. Hard ground ball. And my son, he does what his coach tells him to. He puts the glove on the floor, and it looks at the ball, but it bounces on the floor, and boom, hits him in the shoulder. It looked like he got assassinated. He just, he just kind of melted on the floor. A little being a little overdramatic. He got that from um, <clears throat> a parent. I shall not name. After he gets hurt, he stays in the game, and I know he's done for the game. I know every ball that goes to him, he's going to be so scared that he just cannot catch any other ball. I just know. I know my son. And miraculously, three more balls go to him. Of course, he misses it. Right? He kind of pretends to try, but he lets the ball go. And, and as an Asian parent, I'm like, I'm just dying. I'm just like, please, just end the game. Take him out of the game. Something. End my misery. Sixth inning. This is the last inning. Two outs. One more out, and we get to go home. The giant man of a kid comes up again. Boom! Again, hits it to my son. But my son, he dies for it. And he catches it, and the game is over. I looked at the video. He was actually not looking at the ball. He was doing this. <laughs> I was like, it's a miracle. That kid hit the ball right into my, kid, my son's glove. How do you do that? And later that night, you know, he showered, and I wanted to put him to bed, and he comes up to me, and I say, hey, buddy, great game. Of course, being the Asian parent I am, I want to talk about the errors, but no. I'm like, no, be a decent human being today. Just say good job, and then say good night. And that's exactly what I did. So proud of myself. I said, hey, buddy, good job today. Have a good night's sleep. We said, thanks, Dad. He's walking to his room. He turns around, and he asks me, Dad, has any other kid ever made that kind of play before? And I said, a hundred years of baseball, you think you're the only kid who ever made that play? No, I said to, to myself, in my heart, I wanted to. I wanted to say, yeah, it happens every day, man. <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't, because I'm a good dad. I said, oh, I don't know about that. <clears throat> and I said this, I said, I don't know about that, but I know your brother, he's 10, your brother has never made that play when he was your age which is a true statement. And then my son gave me this look, this. <laughs> I 
this snug, this, 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 this smug, like happy, like satisfied look. Like this, I knew I was the better Lee brother. I knew I was better than him. And he had this soul satisfied look on his face. Because they're always being compared. Same church, same school, same sports. They both do piano. Everything, same. He's seven years old. But there's something deep inside him where he wants to be distinguished from his brother. He wants his name to be special. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't want Micah Lee to be Matthew Lee's little brother. He wants recognition. He wants to make a name for himself. And the desire will never go away. And the same desire is the same desire that's in my heart and your hearts. Think about it. How much of what we do is to make a name for ourselves? In the early years, it's, I don't know, just to be cool, just to be good at a sport. Later on, it's what college you get into, and then it's what job you get, and then it's who you date, it's who you marry. And then for about 20 years, it's about how amazing your kids are. We spend our years making a name for ourselves, and for what reason? You spend the, the large bulk of your life making a great name for yourself, climbing ladders, making a lot of money, big houses, amazing kids, and you go to heaven, what's God's gonna say? You're amazing? No, God's gonna be heartbroken. He's gonna say you spent your entire life going after something you already have. You spent your entire life going after something I already gave you, a name. You could have lived happy, you could have lived satisfied, you could have been fulfilled and lived a peaceful life. But instead you lived frantically, you overworked, you put pressure on your kids, yourself, your spouse, everyone in your family. You demanded from others, all to get something you already have. God will be absolutely heartbroken. Why did you live that way? I already gave what you're looking for. And there is a consequence of living apart from God. Getting a name apart from God, there is a consequence. In the story, I won't read it, but it's that everything they work for is lost. God comes down, right? It says here, verse four, let us come. I'm sorry. Verse five, but the Lord came down to see the city and the Lord confused their language and they have to separate. Everything that they were building for, they just, they could look at it, they could not enjoy it. And that's the punishment we get. You could have a giant house. But you're not going to enjoy it. You're going to be fighting with your wife or husband. Your kids are going to rebel. Not going to enjoy the big old house. You're going to have a, a high paying job. You're not going to enjoy the money that you have. You can look at it. You can see that you have it. 
Your punishment is that when you live life apart from God, you're not going to enjoy whatever you have. You know, we baptized somebody recently in our church, and he asked me this. As we were going through Genesis, he says, Pastor Tim, why does God punish us? I think it was loving. Why can't it be like, oh, I forgive you? Oh, everyone who built the Tower of Babel, oh, I forgive you. Just, just, uh, yeah. You, could, you guys could still be friends and keep your language. You know, I forgive you. It's all good. Just don't do it again. Like, what can, what can God just forgive us? Why does God punish us? Isn't that a great question? Only new believers ask those kind of questions. People who've been Christians all their lives, they don't know the answer, but they're like, eh, who cares? I had to think about, you know, I told them my initial answer was, you know, uh, I talked about God's justice. He can't be just if he just forget about it. You know, there's no just. He's loving and just equally. And, I gave, and that's the right answer. But I, I had to revisit this conversation with him. You know what? That's all true what I said, but there's more. This punishment is not just punishment. It's a gracious punishment. Even God's punishments are loving See, his people were going the wrong way. And he comes down from heaven to intervene so they go the other way. And that's what God does for us. We live the wrong way. We live life going after the wrong name. We're only going towards something that we're not going to enjoy. And God says, no. No. He says no, not to punish us, but so that we may go the other way. See, he's telling us through this story, he's saying, look, I'm not just punishing them. I'm going to show these people that if you live in the city, try to make a name for yourself, all it's going to do is isolate you. You're not going to have harmony. You're not going to have love. You're not going to have community. I'm putting a stop to this so they may have all those great things. Even God's punishment is gracious. God comes down to intervene and he sets us on the other way. A few thousand years later, that's exactly what God does for you and I. We're in sin. We're apart from God. We are on a pathway to hell where there is no God, where we are apart from God forever. And Jesus, God himself, comes down to intervene. He dies for our sins. He takes our sins. He takes the punishment. He takes the wrath of God to himself. He dies on the cross so that we may go the other way, so we may find redemption for our sins, so that we may be forgiven we may be a child of God so that we may enjoy life with God forever in heaven. God comes down once again to intervene so we go to the other way. Any punishment you feel like God has given you, please see the grace behind it. It may be your intervention so that you may experience the gifts and the blessings of God. Living apart from God has no advantages, I promise you. 
living for God, living for his name. That's how you enjoy what God has given you. That's how you live a fruitful life. That's the satisfaction that only God could give you in life. Let us pray.